Well, good morning again. If you want to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1, uh, we're going to be in verses 9 through 13 today. If you're using a pew Bible there, I believe it's on page 707. So two weeks ago, we began our journey through the book of Mark, and we answered three questions, if you remember. Who is Mark? Who is Jesus? And who is this John the Baptist? And for a more thorough treatment of that, you'll have to go back and listen to it again if you forget. Uh, But for right now, uh, we're going to do a quick summation of of how we answered those three questions. Mark was Peter's interpreter who compiled Peter's experiences into a book that is aimed towards proving that Jesus is the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God. Mark began doing this by pointing to John the Baptist as the one who was to come and prepare the way for the Messiah, for God himself. As we continue working through Mark's mosaic this morning, we're going to take a look at the next two highlights on the reel of Jesus' life, his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. The point of Mark every week is going to be that Jesus is the Son of God, because that's the question that's underneath the whole gospel. It's who is Jesus? And so the point of almost every text that we're going to read is that Jesus is the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God. But I'm going to give you a little bit extra, because I think you've got a hold of that from last week, and hopefully as we work through, you're going to grasp it more and more as we behold our Savior and read what Mark is trying to prove. The one big thing that I want you to contemplate this week and this morning is that Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him. Jesus identifies with us so we can identify with him. I'm going to hope to show you this as we work through the text in two parts simply labeled them the water, that's his baptism in verses 9 through 11, and the wilderness, that's his temptation in the wilderness, verses 12 through 13. Before we get started, I think we need to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, open our lives as we open your word this morning. That all of these things might be transformed by you so that we might look more like you. So that we might become and practice what you've declared us to be in truth. That is holy. That we would learn to be holy as you are holy. Father, help us to uh, gird up our loins or to be dressed for action. to, To tighten our belt loops. To be ready for all the temptations and all the things of this world that pull and tug at our hearts for our affections. Lord, help us to be ready to uh, turn from those things and to turn towards you. Help us to make you our supreme passion, our supreme pleasure. Lord, help us to sit underneath and submit to your word this morning. Be with us now. Amen. Starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending into him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Now, I know it's only a few verses 
But there is a ton going on here. John is baptizing Jesus in the Jordan. The heavens are being torn open as the spirit falls into Jesus. And this mysterious voice calls and declares of Jesus. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son in whom I delight. And here we're given a beautiful picture of the mysterious tri-unity of our God. And just as in the creation of the world, which is another glimpse of this tri-unity, this trinity, our God, we have all three persons working in concert together. Mark is using this scene to confirm Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And to show us that the same parties that are represented and present in the creation of the world are now beginning the redemption of the world. The three parties are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You know, we sing that song sometimes, holy, holy, holy. We call out all three persons, and then eventually it's like, blessed Trinity. That's what's going on here. That's what we're seeing in the text is the Trinity working in concert together. This is our God. And this teaching of the Trinity is both mysterious and cognitively challenging. It's hard to understand, yet it is essential to our faith. The most concise way I've found to explain the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one God, eternally existent in three persons. God is one God, eternally existent in three persons. It's not tritheism with three different gods who work in harmony. It's not modalism or unipersonalism with one God who just kind of plays different roles, who puts on different masks, manifests himself in different ways. It's Trinitarianism. It's one God comprised of three persons who know and love one another. God is not more fundamentally one than he is three, nor is he more fundamentally three than he is one. Clear as mud, right? It's mysterious. It's challenging. And all human analogies that attempt to explain the Trinity fall short. Woefully so. The doctrine of the Trinity does not fully explain the mysterious character of our God. But rather it sets boundaries outside of which we must not step. It defines the limits of our finite reflection. It demands that we be faithful to the biblical revelation that in one sense God is one and in a different sense God is three. The Bible teaches us that each person of the Trinity seeks to glorify the other. Each orbits or revolves around the other. Love what C.S. Lewis says on this. He says this, in Christianity, God is not a static thing but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you won't think me, irreverence, a kind of dance. The persons of the Godhead are infinitely pouring out love and joy and adoration upon one another, serving one another. They infinitely seek one another's glory as they dance infinitely together. And so, as a result, God is infinitely happy, infinitely satisfied in and of himself. Keller says this, If the world was made by a triune God, then relationships of love are really what life 
is all about. I like to amend his words and say the same thing, but with a little extra flavor, say that if the triune God of the Bible created all that we know, then relationships of self-giving, biblical love are really what life is all about. Life is ultimately about glorifying God and enjoying him. It's about loving him as he has loved us steadfastly, unceasingly, affectionately. It's about knowing God and being known by God. See, different worldviews require different implications. For instance, if we are simply here by blind chance, then love is nothing more than some chemical reactions going on in our mind in order to ensure the passing on of our genetic code. Ultimately, we come from nothing, Our lives amount to nothing, and we are headed to nothing. On the other hand, if God exists and is simply just one person and one God, then prior to creating humanity, prior to creating us, he cannot know love. Love can only exist in a relationship. Thus, such a God would be dependent upon his creation for love, and such a God cannot be love. I would argue such a God cannot be God. He is inadequate in and of himself. But if the Christian worldview is correct, if from eternity past, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit have existed in relationship, knowing and loving one another, then life is all about loving relationships. It's all about that most important relationship of all the relationship we have with the triune God of the universe, knowing him and being known by him. It's about loving God and loving others. I do think that we must ask this question. Why would this perfectly, blissfully happy God create? I think there's only one answer. That he must have created us, not in order to get joy, but to give joy. He must have created us not in order to get joy, but to give joy. He must have created us to invite us into this dance. To say to us, if you glorify me, if you center your life on me, if you find me beautiful for who I am in myself, then you will step into this dance. It's what you were made for. You were made not just to believe in me or to be spiritual in some general way. You are made to center everything in your life on me. To think of everything in terms of your relationship to me. To serve me unconditionally. That is where you will find true joy. In other words, God created so that he might give us joy And so that we might find our deepest joy and satisfaction in him when we're in right relationship with him. It's the same triune God that created the world that is now pictured here at Jesus's baptism. That's one of the reasons I think Jesus is baptized. Another one is to fulfill all righteousness. And the other one I want to point out is to identify with us at his baptism, the spirit confirms Jesus' identity as the Son of God. The voice of the Father confirms Jesus' identity as the Son of God. At the baptism, he fulfills the saving activity of God that has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And his baptism serves as an inauguration for his ministry. And that is baptism he is identifying with us. 
I always think uh, in terms of identifying with someone or, or, or something. I always think of uniforms, right? How do I identify who a police officer is? As usually he's got a car that, that tells me and his uniform usually tells me. Or if I'm watching a football game, not, not soccer, real football, uh, I identify who is on which side by the uniform that they wear. I hope you all are ready for football season. I'm really excited about it. I'm planning on preaching really long sermons the next couple weeks so that we can get out a little bit early during the season, get home on time. Anyhow, we, we identify who's with who by their uniform. In the same way, Jesus is kind of putting on the uniform of humanity at his baptism. He's saying, I am with this unlovely bunch. In his baptism, Jesus is joining those who seek a baptism of repentance and who are confessing their sins, even though Jesus never repents and never confesses sin because he has no need to repent and he has no sin. Still, he aligns himself with those that he came to save. With us. Jesus is with us. Now, why, why is this important? Because Jesus aligns himself with us so that we might align ourselves with him. He becomes like us so that we can become like him. See, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he fully fulfills the law and the prophets. He lives the life we should have lived. And he offers us this perfect life in exchange for our sinful lives. He identifies with us so that we can identify with him. See, when we follow Jesus, when we place our hope, when we place our trust, when we place our lives in Jesus, we become like him. Judiciously, forensically, positionally, we are declared to be righteous. So that when God looks at us, he sees the righteous life of Christ. Even though currently we are not yet perfect, righteous, or good. We are made right with God because Jesus gives us his rightness. Because we're united with him. When you're united with Jesus, the Father's words here to Jesus apply to you. You are my beloved son or daughter. I take delight in you. I think sadly many of us grow up in the culture today longing to hear affirmations such as this. I do think there's a part of just human nature where we want to be affirmed. We want to be accepted. We want to feel loved. And friend, this is the beauty of the Christian gospel. That when we unite ourselves to Christ by faith, when God looks at us, these words become true of us. We can hear the Father's voice say of us, You are my beloved. I take delight in you. Christian, put your, put your name at the front end of that sentence. Read it slowly. This is what the creator and sustainer of the cosmos says of you. He delights in you. Let that sink in. Feel the weight of it. Non-Christian, you can get your name in that sentence. You simply need to follow Jesus. It's in Jesus that this reality is true of us, that we are delighted in by God. Before we move on, I want to back up one verse to verse 10 
And you'll notice the text says here, the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending to him like a dove. I think this is kind of awesome language, you know, seeing that the heavens torn open isn't like simply Jesus is coming out of the water and far off in the distance. He sees a small door, just a little bit ajar, miles in the sky. No, heaven is torn open. Heaven in the Bible often means God's dimension behind ordinary reality. The heavens being torn open here is more like an invisible curtain right in front of us is suddenly pulled back. So that instead of seeing trees and flowers and buildings, or in Jesus' case, the river and the desert and the crowds, we're standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. I think a good deal of our Christian lives is learning to live in this unseen reality. The reality that reveals to us who we are in Jesus. In other words, we can't always see God's presence with us. We can't always hear his voice audibly affirm us. But by faith, we walk and we work towards becoming practically what God has declared us positionally holy. I mean, do you take confidence in the fact that God is pleased with you? That you're his beloved? Christian, do you daily remind yourself That there is an unseen supernatural world swirling around you. Friends, we ought to know our position in Christ. Know your position. Do you identify with Jesus? Is his delight in you? Or is his wrath on you? As you identify with self. Have you been declared holy? The message of Christ crucified is the only fundamental dividing line in the human race. Not race, not language, not where you were born, not who your parents are. The gospel wipes all of these things away. It makes all the ground level. God doesn't care about your social status. He cares about if you are in Jesus Or if you're in your sins. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with us in our sins. So we can identify with him in his righteousness. Next we see in verse 12. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Notice the same spirit that descends into Jesus and affirms his identity as God the Son and as the Messiah drives him into the wilderness. The word here used to speak of Jesus being driven into the wilderness is the same word that Mark uses to speak of casting out demons. Jesus cast out into the wilderness. The same spirit that casts out demons drives Jesus into the wilderness. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is not a chance encounter, but a divine appointment. I mean, it's not exactly what we expect after the baptism of Jesus. You have this Kodak moment going on. The Trinity's dancing around, as Lewis might say. The invisible curtain is pulled back. Unseen reality, voice of the Father is speaking his delight over the Son. I expect a celebration here. I expect maybe a bit of a party. Maybe like Jesus was driving in the parade as everyone celebrated. 
But that's not what we see. There is no celebration here. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And Jesus submits to the Spirit. I think this shows us that the will of God is not always easy. It's not always for us to be physically safe. God's will for Jesus is to step onto the front lines of battle and to be like man that he just identified with, to be tempted. Submitting to God's will is not always easy, but it's always essential. Proverbs 17.3 tells us that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts of men. Jesus' heart will be tested. And so will your own. Unlike Jesus, we are not uh, 100% successful in overcoming all these temptations. But thanks be to God that he has succeeded where we have failed. At the end of the day, we always obey what we love most. Jesus obeys God in the wilderness, in the midst of temptation. When you're tempted, who do you believe? What do your actions on the day-to-day reveal about who or what you love most? Verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. Jesus' trip into the wilderness is not just a random detour. It is a battleground with a real enemy. Mark treats Satan here as a reality, not a myth. I think this is hard for us Westerners to accept because we've become skeptical of just about everything. We often view Satan, this present darkness, forces of evil, demons, as leftover superstitions from the world's ancient past. I mean, we certainly we don't take them seriously. Here's the problem, though. If you believe in the God of the Bible, and I hope that you do, you must believe in the devil of the Bible. And the Bible says that there are very real forces of evil in the world. And that these forces of evil are incredibly complex and incredibly intelligent. And that Satan is the chief of these forces. And that he and his demons and these evil tempt us. They tempt us away from holiness, away from peace with God, away from joy, away from satisfaction. Let me ask you, Christian, do you live in light of this unseen reality? Or do you dismiss what Paul calls spiritual forces of evil as mere fantasy? You shouldn't. I mean, I admit I'm, I'm myself often guilty of this. I'm someone that leans toward utilizing reason and experience. So much so that I often have to remind myself that the very nature of the Christian faith is supernatural. It's indeed extraordinary. I have to remind myself that there is a metaphysical reality. If the Bible is God's word, we can trust it. The forces of evil are indeed an unseen reality. We must take up arms against them. We must live in light of this unseen reality. It's for good reason that Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6 to be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might to put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let me ask you, are you standing firm or are you ignoring the conflict? I'm a bit of a nerd, uh, as most of you know. I love fantasy and fiction and sci-fi and all that. And so now I bring up Lord of the Rings, uh, the two towers. There's a scene in this movie where the king of the country, Rohan, Theoden, is in denial about the conflict that surrounds him and his people. Another character, Aragorn, is urging him to fight. But the king will not listen. The king says to Aragorn, I know what it is that you want of me, but I will not bring further death to my people. I will not risk open war. To which Aragorn responds, Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Likewise, Christian, open war is upon you, whether you want it or not. You can ignore the conflict as it rages around you, but that will not make the war any less real. Satan and demons and forces of evil are very real. We best not ignore them. Open war is upon us all. And it was upon Jesus in the wilderness Satan was there tempting him. This is where the battle for men's souls begins. Right here. And it will rage all the way to a Roman cross and an empty tomb. Here is Christ in deadly combat for the eternal souls of men. If he loses, we are lost. The stakes are high. The drama has never been so suspenseful. Not in a while, anyhow. But the suspense reminds us of another temptation, and I think deliberately, I think Mark wants us to connect the dots between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the God-man. Both have an intimate relationship with God. Both have a command from God. Both will be tempted to disobey God. God says to Adam, Obey me about the tree. Don't eat from it or you will die. Simple. If you love me, obey me about the tree. We always obey what we love most. Satan comes along and tempts Adam to obey himself rather than God. To eat from the tree. Adam and Eve then obey themselves and eat from the tree. Adam fails to obey about the tree. Likewise, Jesus is told to obey about the tree. To live a perfect life and to go to the cross. Likewise, Satan tempts Jesus to center himself on himself and to ignore the command of God. Jesus does not fail. He lives the perfect life. He goes to the cross. He obeys about the tree. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the true and better Adam. I think Mark also wants us to connect the dots between Israel and Jesus. You know, the wilderness is not a vacation destination. Jesus is not on a beach in Mexico sipping margaritas. It's hot, it's sandy, and it's desolate. The conditions are grueling and dangerous. There are wild animals out there. And these are not labradoodles or dogs that fit in your purse. I mean, the danger is real. 
You got real, tear your flesh from the bone, sink their teeth into you, kill you, wild animals. Conditions in the wilderness are not fun. Jesus is undoubtedly tired and weak, tempted to grumble and complain. I mean, I grumble and complain when I'm in Walmart. It's a wilderness in and of itself. And when Israel is in the wilderness, we see them do what? Grumble and complain and sin against the Lord. Yet Jesus does not grumble or complain or fail to trust God. He remains perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful. Jesus is Israel reduced to one. Jesus is the true and better Israel. I think Mark would also like us to connect the dots between Jesus and ourselves. We are tempted in a great variety of ways each day, each moment. We're constantly assaulted with temptation. We are tempted to obey ourselves rather than God. We're tempted to love ourselves rather than others, rather than Jesus, and often we fail. We're still living in a sinful world. And although we're declared righteous in Jesus positionally, we are not yet there practically. The stain of sin is removed, but the residue of sin remains. We fail. Jesus, however, does not fail. Jesus is righteous completely. Jesus succeeds where we fail. Jesus succeeds where you fail. Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him. Friends, this should be encouraging to you. Be encouraged. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in every way. He can relate to you. He also knows what it is to be comforted by God. I mean, God sends him angels to minister to him in this period. Similarly, he ministers to you. Just as he assured Jesus that he was watching over him, God watches over you. He will never leave you or forsake you. You're not on your own. To live in light of this unseen reality that God delights in you. And that he's for you. Jesus is faithful when we are faithless. Jesus has obeyed where we have disobeyed. Jesus has lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. He's died and rose, so in him we have died to the powers that held us in bondage and have been raised into new life. Love what Charles Wesley says in his old hymn. Ours the cross, ours the grave, ours the skies. Because we've been united to Jesus. We've been in that grave we've been on that cross we live in that sky that unseen reality do want to ask one last question why was jesus able to obey perfectly did he have some kind of like cheat code on life where it was just easier for him no jesus obeyed perfectly because he loved god perfectly we obey what we love we obey who we love and jesus knew that he did not need to earn the Father's favor, but that he had already had the Father's favor positionally. You are my beloved. Take delight in you. Jesus lived in light of that reality. 
And as a result, his obedience was not cold or shrill or obligatory, but affectionate. Borrow an illustration from Charles Spurgeon here. He says, once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. He decided to give this carrot to his prince because he loved his ruler. When he gave it to the prince, the prince discerned his love and his devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. And the gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard of this incident and thought, Hey, if the prince gives that in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give me if I gave him a horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift. The prince also discerned his heart and said, You expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot. But you, in giving me the horse, were giving yourself the horse. If you know your position in Jesus, then it will be a joy for you to be obedient or to give carrots, if you will. It will become part of your nature to simply love the ways of God and to walk in them. If you know your position in Jesus, you will be able to more easily become in practice what he has declared you to be in truth. Daily, you will become more and more holy as he is holy. You will do right because it will flow from who you are in Christ. If you're united to Christ, your actions will be good. They'll be pleasing and given to God as a gift. Your obedience will be affectionate rather than obligatory. I fear that some of us, though, are not like the gardener, but the nobleman. We think that we're going to earn and keep our peace with God, our salvation, by doing good things. But God, like the prince in the story, discerns our hearts. If your obedience is cold, if it's obligatory, if it's to the end of putting God in your debt or making God owe you, it is no obedience, it is sin. You can do nothing to make yourself right with God, no matter how good you are. It's like if we're all standing on Florida's coast and say, hey, we're going to swim to Africa. Maybe there's three of us. Uh, I'm not going to get too far. I'm not a good swimmer. I'm going to drown. Uh, maybe you're a better swimmer than I am. You get a little bit further, but eventually you're going to drown. Maybe Michael Phelps is with us, Olympic swimmer. He's going to swim a few miles. I don't know how many, maybe 20 miles. I don't know. But eventually he's going to drown. No one is, is getting to Africa. Likewise, all men fall short of the glory of God. No amount of good works, no amount of swimming is going to get you to God on your own. Works cannot and will not save. Not now, not ever. The gospel calls us all to repent. Not only of our sin, but of our self-righteousness. Of our foolish swimming. Without true love for Jesus, without faith in Christ, our deeds are ultimately not done for God, but for ourselves and are thus not truly good. Jesus invites us to repent of our wretched good deeds 
as well as of our sins. He calls us to repent of our religiosity as well as our rebellion. He calls us to repent and believe the gospel. You have lived an imperfect life and deserve death. We all deserve the wrath of God. This is what your sin has earned. But God, being rich in mercy and abounding in love, has stepped into our world, stepped into your world, took on flesh and become like you, so that he might live the perfect life that you should have lived on your behalf and die the perfect death, the death that you should have died on your behalf. He calls you to be united with him so that his life can become your life, his death, your death, his victory, your victory, his peace, your peace, his inheritance, your inheritance. Jesus identifies with you so you can identify with him. Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him. You can keep trying to find meaning and purpose and peace based on your own performance. You can trust in the position that Jesus gives you when you follow him. The position of son. The position of daughter. The position of beloved. Friend, the war is upon you. You may be feeling helpless and hurt, caught up in the lie of the evil one. But take heart. You can identify with Jesus and step into the marvelous light. When you identify with Jesus, you can take comfort in the Father's words. You are my beloved. I delight in you. Do you want to hear those words this morning? This day, every day on that day, when Jesus returns throughout all eternity. I hope that you do. And if you're not following Jesus, if you don't identify with Jesus, I pray that you would. And I would love to help you do that. I'm always available to all of you throughout all the week, all the time, but especially during this time. So that if you do want to identify with Jesus, I can help you begin to do that. So that if you just want to pray, because you feel conviction, you just want to confess sin, I'm here to do that with you. We're all here to do that with one another. And so as we prepare to sing our hymn of response, I invite you to to come up here and to, to pray with me. Or even to just pray with someone next to you. Or to just pray in the Holy Spirit where you sit. Let's pray together as we begin to sing that hymn of response. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. For taking the wounds that should have been ours. For crying the tears that should have been ours. For healing us and giving us joy. Thank you for giving us life by your Spirit's power. Lord, let us live lives that are an offering to you. Lives that are marked by affectionate obedience to your word. Lord God, be glorified in us now as we delight in you together. Amen.